broadcasting under the night sky from the edge of an undisclosed jungle on the Gulf of Mexico. I'm Christopher Garitano, your voice in the night. For the next hour, allow me to be your guide into the bizarre unknown, the fantastic macabre, and together we'll journey to that borderland between fiction and reality, a place beyond all rational explanation. We are now off to the witch. Chant the spell, Lilith be well. Chant the spell, Lilith be well. Chant the spell, Lilith be well. Well, the occult traditionally was something that was hidden. And man, in any religious experience, has found that his confrontation with that source had to be couched in very hidden terms, very occult terms. It wasn't for every common man. And so the religious things that have come down through the ages have been man's confrontation with God. That was from a 1970s interview with a practicing witch in the United States. The study and application of what we know as witchcraft has existed in one form or another for thousands of years. Essentially, it's a designed and calculated ritual of fortified thought for the manipulation of energy and fate. Ingredients and implements are used as a catalyst to strengthen the final result. It's perceived that if used for the wrong reasons, it can come back to the spellcaster tenfold in the most negative way. Is witchcraft real? And is there a measurable science to spellcasting? Tonight we'll speak with an authentic practicing modern witch that claims her own conjurings have actually worked and in some cases undeniably and powerfully dark results. Stay tuned, and I'll return after this commercial break. After these messages, we'll be right back. In the quiet town of Eastwick, where nothing ever changes, three beautiful women are about to discover powers they never dreamed they had. Who should we be looking for? He should be really handsome. Nice eyes. Now, the man of their dreams is here. Jane, last we meet. To stay for a spell. Who are you? Just your average horny little devil. With the witches of Eastwick. We could do things you haven't any idea. <laughs> you know what's going on up in that house? She says she sees the devil here in Eastwick. If you were the devil, would you come to Eastwick? Oh, I don't know. Are you going to seduce me, too? Women. A mistake? Or did he do it to us on purpose? <laughs> Jack Nicholson, Cher, Susan Sarandon, Michelle Pfeiffer, The Witches of Eastwick. Hocus Pocus.
Welcome back to Off to the Witch. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and tonight's guest walks among us in everyday life. Krista Brown is a military veteran and works professionally in the medical field, but secretly, for most of her life, has been a practicing witch. Her story is a variety of what influenced her, from paranormal encounters to literature and nature. Also, her knowledge, practice, and application of witchcraft. So here's my interview with Krista Brown. Well, I was born in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and I grew up in a rather small town called Montoursville. I, um, I can remember from early childhood um, being very heavily in love with two things. And the first was being outdoors and playing and sort of <laughs> being the leader of the group of kids in the neighborhood. And the second thing uh, was my love for stargazing and being out under the summer moon and teaching the neighborhood children about the constellations and showing them you know, the pictorial representations in books about constellations, especially in the summertime uh, when Scorpius would be on the horizon and moving up overhead. And I can remember I was always um, looking into science textbooks and I was looking into a lot of mysteries. And I, I, I was one of the, you know, quintessential girls brought up on Nancy Drew, you know. Um, and when I was a kid, I wanted to be Nancy Drew. Um, I, I was really big into, you know, finding answers to my questions. Um, you know, I was spending a lot of time by myself. I spent a lot of time at the library. Um, when I was probably about 10 or 11 years old, I really, I really started getting into, um, you know, what would be considered horror. I mean, the first time I ever read horror was probably... Uh, around that age, and it was The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe. And and I can remember thinking, well, this must be really something special, this animal. This must mean something to him, to write a, a, a story about this. Anyway, well, witches always have black cats. Maybe maybe he was a witch. You know, Maybe that was something that you know, I should look into more. As a, as a kid growing up, then... Um, being so library bound, I I would find books on astrology, which I had no idea, you know, what that was at the time. It's almost as if these things would find me. Um, the very first time I learned what astrology was, was in fourth grade. And I had pulled this book off the shelf. And my small group of kids that, you know, my friends that I associated with, they were all intrigued. You know, what is this? What are you talking about? what is this that you're doing? I said, well, it has to do with your birthday. You know, if you're, if you're born at this time, then you're this sign or you're that sign. And I think, I think it gave me a sense of feeling uh, unique or special because I, I had this knowledge that other kids didn't. And I was, you know, trying to teach them, but in my small group of, of friends, you know, I was the only one who was the winter baby. All my other friends, they were born in the summer, they were born in the fall. And, you know, for, for a child who kind of 
grew up by herself um, and, and trying to find her own way that way. To find something like this that made me feel special was, was really massively important to me. When you say you grew up by yourself, um, is it mainly because you were an only child? or Right, right. Um, biologically, I'm an only child. Um, my parents, uh, following the divorce, my mom remarried. And I inherited, uh, you know, three older brothers, the youngest of which is seven years older than me. I always felt that I was still very much by myself, you know, until, until like later in my teens, did I feel this way? Um, and, and I always felt that I was sort of the loner, the outsider. I belonged, but not a hundred percent. Um, and it was really challenging for me as a child, um, to kind of find my own way. And it was things like the astrology and the, you know, learning of astronomy and the sketching the moon and all those other things I mentioned that really seemed to speak to me and make me feel at ease at a time when that feeling was very fleeting. My, my older brothers, um, especially the one who's youngest in proximity to me in age, you know, he was kind of a rocker, but kind of, you know, on the fringe of kind of being a stoner, kind of being a little bit of a jock, a little bit of, you know, a punk. And, and I just kind of looked at him like, you, you're doing your own thing and you seem to know your way, but I really don't know my way. But, you know, I was, I was delving into books and I was kind of creating my own reality from the things that I was reading. So, um, I've always been fascinated at the origins of people's interest in things because I am with my own history. I think it helps you under, helps you understand another person or people uh, more in depth when you know what what it was, what the catalyst was that got them into this thing that they adhere to so much. And as far as I know, and we haven't gotten into super detail yet, that you, witchcraft and the like are a big part of your life and being. And is it a secret thing? Have you had to keep it secret over the years? Oh, definitely. Okay. Um, and why now is it that you're okay with talking about it? Well... I think largely I'm just at a point in my life where I feel that I'm ready to own my own space and I'm ready to be authentically and genuinely myself, you know, and that, that comes with experiential learning, right? I mean, that's, that's something that you have to grow into. That's something that you need to test waters of in order to feel comfortable in your own skin. Um, I certainly didn't feel that way for a long period of time. I was, I was afraid to be out of the so-called broom closet. Um, because of, of persecution, you know, whether it was from peers or from friends, or it was from, you know, people that were in an authority position, I was afraid to own up to what it was that I was thinking or feeling or doing or getting into, you know, I, it was a, it was a, a dark secret for a lot of years, you know. And it is for a lot of people, because it seems like um, many people who get into not only witchcraft, but something slightly different, which is um, various forms of Satanism, black magic, you know, anything that has to do with the 
the um, ethereal or magical arts, their origins usually are in Christianity and uh, or forms of it. And, you know, in a lot of cases, it's their rebellion uh, to that, that they feel they need something different, that they can have more control over things. They can manipulate things um, to their advantage in some cases. Were those things attractive to you when you were a child? Like it started when you were a kid, were you, did you find yourself getting into things that had that theme to it? Like what I keep pushing towards is once you opened your mind to those things, were there aesthetics that were allowed in at that point? Like at what point in your childhood or adolescence did you first really say, okay, I'm going to go to a a witchcraft shop or a Wicca shop and try something? Sure. I, I can say that, you know, I started probably as a lot would say, you know, with this sleepover Ouija board experience, you know, playing games like light as a feather, stiff as a board. So take me back there. Take me back to a night where you and whoever, and you can create the scenario for me, for the audience and all of us. I want to go back there. I want to go back to that night. I want you to to take us back to one of those nights where you're having fun for the most part and you were attempting to use one of these culturally traditional spells. When I was about 13 years old, I can remember vividly, you know, having gone to a sleepover and there's probably five or six girls all about the same age. Eventually, after you know the music and the talk about whatever else, we would delve into things that were a little less permissible by our parents. You know, sometimes you know, there was a little bit of, of illicit substance, you know, presence at these at these functions. But on this particular occasion, somebody said, "Hey, my older sister has a Ouija board. Has ever been, anybody ever used one?" We're like, yeah, sure, let's give it a go. You know, we, you know, cusp of adolescence and, and you know, we want to be adventurous. So let's give this a go. So we cut the lights out. Everybody puts their fingers on the planchette, you know, and you're waiting to try to figure out who's, who's pushing the thing around the board, right? And we're in the dark, and the only thing that can be seen is the light of the candles that are reflected by the mirror. And of course, we start asking questions, you know, is there somebody there that wants to talk to us? What is your name? You know, where are you? How do we know that you're on the other side? And we're not really getting a lot of response, you know, and we're laughing, we're having a good time with this. And we're just sort of um, you know, playing it off as it's, it's just kind of a big joke. Until one of the girls took her fingers off the planchette. And we all just sort of figured, okay, we're about done with this. And the thing starts to move by itself. Now, I suppose looking at it now, you could say, well, it was because it was on this unlevel surface and it was probably subject to somebody bumping the board. But at that moment, that was an absolute impossibility. You know, we thought so. And one of the girls says, can you feel that? And of course, we're all tuning in going, what? What are, you, what are you talking about? What is this? She says, well, I can feel the air shaking. 
and we're looking at her like, really, you're just full of it. And in another moment, one of the other girls says, oh my God, I feel it too. And of course, about this time, the candle flame starts to flicker and it's becoming very dramatic. And somebody says, there's something here with us. And of course, you know, somebody looks up and says, you know, something moving behind. But it was at that moment that I looked up and I looked directly into the mirror where the, the candlelight was reflecting and it was, it was sort of refracted in a way that you couldn't really make out anything specific. But I saw a face and it wasn't a human face. And what was it? I, I, I don't know. To this date, I don't know what it was. It was wildly distorted. It was sort of melted looking, kind of viscous, kind of flowing. It wasn't holding a specific shape. Um, and it was very, it was very sort of grainy looking and couldn't really make out anything. And I screamed. I would scream. Of of course, you know, the others, they, they're operating completely off of my reaction. And so everybody in the room is now screaming. Did anybody else see this, what you saw? I, I don't think so. Okay. And I tried to explain it to them, what I had seen. And, you know, that's the point, you know, in the whole ritual where the hysteria just really took over. And, you know, we're all just completely losing our minds to the extent that so-and-so's father comes to the door and, and demands to know what the hell is going on in his daughter's bedroom. And what time was this? What time of the oh, night? This, this was probably very late at night, you know, later than we were probably supposed to be up. You know, the, the curfew was probably 10. We were supposed to be sequestered to somebody's bedroom by midnight and lights out no later than, than probably two. So it was probably somewhere between, you know, 12 and, and let's say, you know, two or three o'clock in the morning. Um, I can remember I got up, I bolted out of the room. And I got stopped at the door by her mother who spun me around and looked at me and she says, what are you doing? And I said, I can't be here. And I'm on the verge of tears. I'm that upset. And I lived about four houses down the street and I can remember slipping on sneakers, bolting out the door and, and just making a beeline for home. And And what did you think this what you saw was I, I i really i really don't know and i know over the years i've i've thought about it but i really I won't let myself think about it too hard because you know in my mind we opened a door and we had something come through come across to make contact with us you know in this world you know something punched through the veil you know, somebody swept it aside. Something entered to answer our call that we had made, even if it was lighthearted, even if it was farce. We still put the all call out for something to join us, and it did. And when something like that happens, especially especially when something is um, horrific like that, as you described, whatever this was that you saw, um, sometimes it turns people to religion 
they'll never go back there again. They'll never mess with a spell again. They want nothing to do with it. In your case, the next day, how did you feel? Did you feel like, I want to go and find what this thing was, try and conjure it again? Or were you turned in the other direction? Well, this is the insanity of it because after I got home and you know my, my parents were awakened and they're going, what is going on? And I was like, I, I need to come home. I don't know what transpired, but something happened that they were able to talk sense back into me. And I went back to my, my girlfriend's house, you know, and they actually let me back in. I don't know why, you know, at this point I would have been like, look, honey, you, you took out of here like a bat out of hell. You, you need to go to the hell home. But they let me go back with the, the group of girls and we talked it out and we figured that it was just something that somebody misperceived, namely me. Um, and, and we didn't use the board again, but we didn't get rid of it. And we talked about it and we were talking about things like, you know, we should probably get rid of this thing. Oh no, no, you can't get rid of it. If you get rid of it, you're, you're binding the energy to yourself for life. You can't do that. Well, my older sister said her friend tried to burn one of the Ouija boards and it wouldn't burn. And she's had nothing but bad luck ever since. And we're like, well, what do we want to do about this? And so we sort of, you know, made this plan that maybe it would be just better to take the thing and bury it in the backyard, which I believe we did the next day. You know, so it wasn't even like, let's take five minutes to contemplate what just happened. It was experience it, get through it, return to the scene of the crime. And just sort of drive on as if nothing had happened. It was it was really kind of bizarre because we had we had scared ourselves to death. And here did, we were. Did your friend believe your every word in regard to what you I, saw? I, I don't know. At the time, yes. Okay. I think after the fact, she thought I was just full of it. I believed that I saw something. I know I saw something. Um, when I took that bit of information to a different group of friends and indeed her mother, her mother said to me, we need to cleanse you. You need to come with me. We're going to go to this metaphysical shop. I'm going to talk to the store owner and we're going to do some things to help, you know, cleanse you of this, this bad energy that you got into, but you really don't want to do this anymore. So her mother was into what is sometimes called as white magic, Wicca, or she was, she, or, or even some kind of new age right, energy. Right. She was open um, to that. She was open to oracle cards, angel cards, candles, incense. She was open to the idea of, of uh, energy and, you know, there, there's good energy and there's bad energy. And I don't really know or remember to what extent she was into this sort of thing. I remember going there and her talking to the shopkeeper and we went around and we picked out a couple books and we picked out a couple candles and the candles, I think you can still get to this, this day. They, they were, you know, cutesy little names like, um, you know, cleanse this space or holier than thou or abundant blessings or things like that. And we picked out a few of these things. And when we had gotten back to her house, we had lit them. And she probably said some sort of a prayer or something over me in, in order to, you know, remove this spiritual residue that was what she believed to be harmful. And that was the last time, you know, I, I remember having gone through something like that 
you know, at least at, at that point in life with another person. But that was sort of like the first time that I had true exposure to that kind of thought. Um, you know, treating it as if it were an ailment or an illness or an injury. And that you were using this sort of energetic power to to remove, you know, a, a bad state, you know, from something or someone. How much longer after that did you attempt to mingle with those energies again, or did you, or did you ever, did you ever um, attempt to contact something from the darker realms? Was it always now? being cautious? Because obviously you did go forward. Well, I, I think I was shaken up enough by the whole experience that I sort of felt like this is not something that I want to do again, because I don't know enough about it. And I don't, I don't know how to control it. Um, so I, I sort of let that part go. I mean, it was very, it was very enticing to me, the thought of, of being in touch with a side of, of life that many people don't see. Um, it was very attractive in its own way. It was, it was scary. It was dangerous. It was, you couldn't just rationalize it and say it was this or it was that. I mean, this was true, legitimate, otherworldly stuff. Um, but I, I set that aside and it was probably, you know, more accurate to say that what I was doing was more more white witchy things like the incense and the chanting and the singing and, um, you know, trying to raise energy in a positive light, trying to commune with nature, trying to be, you know, outside doing things, you know, for the good of earth without really thinking of it in terms of, of being anything related to, to Wicca or witchcraft. Um, when I was 19 years old, the first spell that I ever did uh, came in the midst of my parents deciding that they were going to merge a couple bedrooms into a master suite. And the the bedroom that had been mine for like the previous 15 of 19 years was going to be usurped into something else. And I thought to myself, oh my God, there's energy in that room that I don't want my parents to know about. There were things contained in the walls of that bedroom that I didn't want anybody to know about, at least of all my parents. So in other words, it, there were practices in regard to the, these forms of magic when you were alone in your room, or do you mean just in general going through life? Well, I think just generally going through life, but also because of doing, doing things that maybe they wouldn't have approved of. I, I grew up in a very Catholic household and to be doing anything that was outside the realm of going to mass was probably satanic. Did they ever confront you or find any implements in regard to Wicca, witchcraft, black magic, um, any of your books? Did they I, see any of that stuff? I, I kept a lot of it. Heavily and were you a mass. goth kid? You know, because a lot of the, the goth kids wear it on their sleeves. So. Um, I, you know, internally, yes, but I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't allowed to express it on the outside. You know, but at this point I'm, I'm, you know, I'm into horror. I'm into doing horror makeup. I'm into, um, you know, listening to music that was far and away outside of what was considered normal and not because it was punk or metal or goth or anything like that, but because it was, you know, I'm listening to Gregorian chants. Did you, so what was the next time 
that you experienced anything profound. You know, there was that first time where you were young, you were at a friend's house playing with the Ouija board. Was there another time then going to more advanced magic that you experienced something else that you may not have wished for? I, when I was probably in my, in my late teens, early twenties, as, as I started to understand that I was massively dissatisfied with my spirituality because I was trying to identify, you know, with things that my family were, were doing, but it was about that time that I started seeing, um, sort of you know, shadows on the fringe of my vision. I started hearing voices. Maybe it was an over-exaggeration of, of, you know, my, just my gut instinct. I don't know, but I was hearing things in my head that, you know, begged of me to please pay attention for your own safety, get out of there. And I would say nine times out of 10, it was, it was right. You know, and I don't know that it was what you would call a guardian angel. I don't know that it was, you know, something from the other side that was talking to me. You know, I, I was going to school to be a scientist and I was very heavily rooted in empirical data. It was very hard for me to still make the leap into the spiritual realm because I was being taught to analyze and critique and be methodical and, and be data-driven. Now, you continued to keep this secret, and did you continue to advance in your study and practice also, or were there times where you put it away? When I was in the thick of my undergraduate years, I, I put everything aside that wasn't absolutely vital to my existence. And the only time I really ever touched it or anything that was sort of on the fringe of, of witchcraft or at least alternative thinking you know, was, you know, hanging out with the goth kids on campus or playing Magic the Gathering, getting involved with the people that were playing Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I, I left high school. I, I, went into, I went into a very stringent science-based program and I became a LARPer, you know. Uh, we're talking like 1996, 1998, and Vampire the Masquerade is like the high point. <laughs> I remember. Right? Right. Um, and, and if you were, you know, anywhere adjacent to that, you, you got sucked into these live action role playing games and, you know, it was an outlet. It was a chance for me to dance with the occult and feel safe about it because at the end of the night, you put it in a nice little box and you put it away and you go back to being a mild mannered college student. But I always went back. You know, that's, that's the thing about it is it, it always spoke to me and it always called to me, but I wasn't always ready to engage with it. And looking back now, if I would have just embraced it, it probably would have solved a lot of heartache in my life if I would have just let it roll, but I didn't, I chose otherwise. So there was, there was some struggle with it. Oh, there definitely was struggle. I didn't know how to tell people. I didn't know what it was that I would tell them, even if I could muster the courage. I was going to friends and I was saying, you know, what do you believe? 
And then we would invariably get on the topic of paranormal activity. And do you believe in the supernatural? And, you know, what are your thoughts on if somebody had a hypothetical experience like this, what would you say? And nine times out of 10, somebody would say, well, you need an exorcism. Uh, And I'm going, okay, check, please. I'm not having this conversation anymore because y'all think I'm crazy. Really is what you're saying. You're saying that anybody who is having a, a, a similar experience like this is not so. And you are kind of like washing your hands of it. And I'm like, I, I don't know how to maintain friends and tell them that I am feeling, you know, this pull towards the dark side to the macabre to, I mean, we went to a, a school that was surrounded on three sides by cemetery. There was no getting away of, from this for me. And it was closing in on me. You know, it was, it just slowly, slowly crept more and more into my conscious mind. The more I tried to actively push it down. And let me ask, um, and even though if it's a, a combination, you can tell me before I go further, cause I have a, f- a few questions, um, what specifically is your practice of magic, so to speak? Uh, so these days, I I call myself a witch, and I practice witchcraft. I consider myself pagan. I do not consider myself Wiccan or any other specific, um, you know, subset of of pagan practice like that. Um, I feel that what I do is largely nature worship, goddess worship, and the practice of, of witchcraft through, you know, performance of ritual and, and the using of, of spells, you know, to work in concert with my will, you know, and I do that largely for myself. I don't generally do spell work for others, except in very, very specific circumstances. Um, generally it is of and for and by myself that I do these things. So, um, I, I'm a solitary practitioner by choice. I have had opportunities to, uh, join groups, study groups, or what would be considered covens. And except for one time in my life, I I've just decided to bow out of you know the group situation largely because of my own discomfort. I just, I didn't feel like the energy present in the group was resonant with my own. And I just said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm just going to go back and go back to my, my usual solitary practice because that's where I derive the most satisfaction. So yeah, I'm a sort of a standalone loner witch here in the backyard. And would you call that like a combination of what we know as Wicca, um, some forms of black magic, you know, whereas Bruce Lee combined a ton of martial arts and Jeet Kune Do, would you, would you say it's similar to that? Because I know people who are into those type of ethereal arts and, and spells that really don't, they can't specify exactly what type. It's really just a combination of philosophies and ideas. When I was a young practitioner, when I was a baby witch, which is probably a terrible term, but I'll go with it, I was very much drawn to Wicca, which is a religion. It is a religion. There are rules. There are um, specifics one must adhere to if you are going to be setting up a Wiccan ritual. 
And I found that to be very confining. And I found it to be satisfying only to a certain extent because it was all light and love and, you know, what we would think of as, as just a little too egregiously positive. Um, there's a term for that. It's, it's fluffy bunny is, is the kind of witch that only ever practices white magic, that only ever um, focuses on the positives or on, you know, for good of all mankind. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not true of life, right? Life doesn't operate that way. That you can't have it just the good and not the bad. It's a yin and yang situation. There's always going to be, you know, a partnership, a balance. You have to have the dark along with the light. And I decided that that wasn't for me. Now, I did take a lot of those elements forward into even my my present day practice uh, when it comes to use of tools, my selection of of, uh, locations that I like to do certain rituals. Um, the way that I set them up, the way that I time them. Um, but generally speaking, I would say as as I've matured as a practitioner, that I have definitely embraced more of the darker energy, the shadow work, um, the deep introspective you know, digging in order to find what is your true motivation? Let's get down and dirty with this. What is your true reflection? What are you, what are you afraid of? Let's look at that. And the bigger, the badder it is, the more I find I have to go for it. Um, and there was a time early on when I would never have invoked any kind of spiritual energy that was anything other than positivity. And, you know, in recent times, I've had to set that aside and go, this is bigger. This is meaner. This is dirtier. I've got to go dark with this. I've got to get into some of the nasty sides of of witchcraft in order to conjure the energy that I'm going to need to drive this spell. And a lot of people out there are going to listen to this and they're going to like, oh, my God, you've gone off the deep end. The only 
nothing more terrifying than the last 12 minutes of Suspiria for the first 92. part that maybe the audience would want to know is that what what's attractive about this there are a lot of elements to it like you had mentioned earlier being in touch with the earth the energies spirit um it has an incredible history to it the ritual itself uh the implements the smells the incense all that stuff is very appealing the culture itself um but there's this other thing and I think the thing that attracts people the most is that you're able to manipulate things in life and make them happen. When was the first time that you felt you were really able to do that, that it worked? And you can speak, you don't need to name names, but you can give me a scenario if you're generous enough as to when you realize this stuff really worked. Oh, you know, it's, it's almost... A difficult question for me to answer because time and time again, I've proven to myself that this stuff works. Um, there was an opportunity not that long ago um, where some of us got together in order to sort of share collective energy to stop someone from incurring abuse from their domestic partner. And we decided that we weren't going to pull any punches. I mean, we, we were going nasty with this. Uh, we, we were going to, you know, shed all conventional notions of good versus evil. And we were going to say, we're going to get this person because this crap's got to stop. And you know, through our combined effort, our combined research, our combined effort, all of our experiential learning and, and just sort of, you know, putting this all together and the chanting and the ritual and the projection of the energy out into the universe, we were convinced that by the time that ritual was over, this person was going to meet with some foul play and probably horrendously so. And one of the first things that you learn in coming to witchcraft or Wicca or maybe, maybe even ceremonial magic is that you got to be careful when you play with fire because you're probably going to get burned. And if you are actively seeking to do something to somebody out of retribution, even if it's in the name of saving somebody else, there is a heavy price to be paid there. You have to pay the karmic debt for that. And that's usually in the form of a sacrifice. And you can think of that in terms of physical sacrifice on the physical plane or metaphorically something on a spiritual plane, but there's going to be a cost and you have to be willing to pay the cost. And we each decided individually what it was that we were going to, you know, air quote sacrifice 
you know, because nobody's, nobody's killing anybody. Nobody's doing blood sacrifices. Nobody's doing, you know, sacrificing babies, you know, to the universe or whatever. You know, I can't say that there wasn't blood involved, but it certainly wasn't, you know, taking it from another life form. Speaking of which, I'm, I'm going to ask you to take me through a full spell, if that's okay. I, I think it's important to know what, what you have to do to prepare, how you go through the ritual, how you cast a spell, essentially. Um, sure, sure. Um, so in, in recent months, uh, there came a situation where uh, somebody near and dear to me was suffering at the hands of, of multiple people. And this person had no idea that I was intervening on their behalf because they were, you know, hospitalized at the time. And I decided that, you know, even though, even though you need to get permission most times from the individual in order to do a spell for them, that I was going to, I was going to take it on myself as a personal hit or a karmic hit that I wasn't going to be able to ask them because as far as I understood it, they were dying. Um, and so what I wanted to do was pull together people that were, were going to help me with this. And I, I pulled together a couple of girlfriends who are like-minded. And generally speaking, what we do um, first of all, is, is a lot of pre-planning, you know, there spells are like anything else in life, like a recipe. You need to have the right rhythm, the right ingredients, the right energy, the right timing in order to put this together. And so you, you do a lot of pre-planning, you decide what is the best time of day, what is the best day of the week, what is the best, um, you know, spiritual ingredient that you would want to throw into the mix and who was going to do what, and then who is going to do what speaking parts. And so largely, um, we divvied up the parts. We each had our individual responsibilities for what was going to be happening in the spell. Everybody had, you know, their, you know, grocery list of the things that they were going to be responsible for procuring in order to bring this together. Um, and, and keep in mind, they're all doing this at my behest is, is more of a personal favor to me. And I, I didn't, I didn't share with them at the time that we were doing this unbeknownst to the person, you know, that we were doing it for. And we got together on the night of, um, May's Eve, which is, um, the first of May. And we, you know, built the fire. Everybody had, you know, their appropriate choice of dress or undress, as the case may be. All of the ingredients were brought together. Um, you know, we did, we did the physical housekeeping. We made sure that the area was secure. We made sure that it was private. We made sure that there weren't prying eyes. We secured all, you know, electronic devices, you know, and set them aside. And we got together. We chanted. We danced we howled, we built the energy, we declared the purpose, and we sent it out into the night. And a few days later, we got word back that the person that was involved, her abuser, had died in a car crash. 
that's that's pretty heavy to at least assume you were responsible for that. We had pre-conversations about this, and I believe that your perspective is that there's some kind of science to this. Can you tell me how this spell may have worked? Well, you know, if you if you break it down, witchcraft is the applied science of energies and you know life force of of traditionally plants and animals you know energy cannot be created or destroyed it only changes forms and that comes from newtonian physics and i think when you have a common goal and you have the energies in concert and they are resonant and they are powerful and you have visualized the desired end state. That's key. Witchcraft and magic is all about the visualization. It's all about if you can envision it, you can create it on the physical plane. Um, if you can put all those things together in, in addition with proper timing, the right phase of the moon, the conjunction of planets, if you can draw all of this together at the same time, raise the energy, visualize the desired end state, bring it to almost a, a, a height, a crescendo of unsurpassed measurement, and you project that out into the universe. All of that energy that you have created from, you know, drawing it up from the earth, from dancing, from chanting, from, you know, pulling all of this together and then sending it out it's going to hit its direct target. It is. It's like a missile and it's got eyes on it and it knows where it's going. And when you, when you do this, you do it to, to inform it of its purpose and you tell it, this is what you want to have happen. And if there is enough resonant energy sent in the same direction at the same time, big things happen. Big right. things happen. And there are consequences too. So in other words, if let's say if the ritual or the spell or the intention behind it is disingenuous or wrong, let's say wrong, you know, um, if it's malicious, right, there's really no justification for it. There were other alternatives that would somehow come back on the person. Do you believe that in a negative way? I, I, I do. I do. And there's a lot of discussion amongst witches and, and Wiccans and magical practitioners about what's called the tenfold law or the threefold law, which is basically if you send out an energy, you're likely to get that back, you know, orders of magnitude more. And if that's a positive thing, that's great. If you're helping somebody, you are loading up your karmic bank of good things and that will pay dividends in your favor. Okay, but if you are maliciously going after somebody, no matter for what end, for what purpose, you know, I was doing this for a friend of mine who was being viciously abused by her domestic partner. And I was going to bat for her. Sure. Do, let me ask but a question. Um, that, that, I... that ultimately would come back and it would, it would be a problem. Sure. Right. And, and, and another question I have is, how does 
and 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 it's it's kind of a complicated one. So give me a second on this. So how you have spells which are a catalyst, right? But I think people in general can tap into these energies. Sometimes they don't even know it with hate, anger. I wish, I wish is kind of the same thing with less um, calculation and understanding behind it. So in other words, let's say someone wishes the death of someone on a daily basis. They focus their energy and hate on that person. Wouldn't that be the equivalent of a disingenuous spell, a death spell or whatever, where it's not in self-defense, it's not a protection spell. No one's really doing anything to you that bad and you focus your hate and you focus your hate. Doesn't the universe kind of pay it in the same way? Does that work the same way or, or is it just because you did a spell? You're always going to get back, I believe, that what you put out. And if you are perseverating, if you are always focused on hateful, negative, maligning energies or intent towards somebody else, that's, that's a terrible thing. You know, that's, that's only going to damn you, you know, and, and whether, whether it becomes, uh, you know, damaging to you physically or damaging to you mentally, something's going to happen. And I, I don't really know if that answers your question or not. Um, it does. I, Cause I was always curious. It's like, how does the, the world or the clockwork of the universe recognize when you're doing a spell or not? I mean, like they're very ritualistic things to thought. Sure. Um, you know, you can sit and just focus your energy on something. I think even people who um, have done spells for a long time, they've described the advanced state of being able to cast is literally thought, you know? It is. It's, it's literally a thought form. It is taking something from the ethereal plane and giving it life on the physical. Intention is everything. The universe works in a straight line, okay? If there's something that you want, that you are asking of the universe, you will get it, but you will get it in the shortest, most direct line possible, okay? If you are wanting a windfall of money, and that's what you ask of the universe, you'll get your money, but you'll get it because you'll lose an aunt or an uncle or another family member who dies in the process. So you've gained something, but you've lost something. You may ask to, you know, I really want to lose weight for such and such a purpose. Okay. But if, if you are not specific to that intention, if you cannot speak clearly what it is that you're after, you might lose the weight, but maybe because you developed, I don't know, necrotizing fasciitis. Oof. Or you're in a car crash and you literally lose a part of your body. That's no way to lose weight. That's no way to lose weight. Uh, you know, so you you have to be very specific with your intention, point one. And point two is you have to understand your motivation. And this this brings it back around to the introspection, the shadow work, the dark energy. Because if you are not acquainted with the true motivation of what it is that you're doing, if you're not honest with yourself and you start 
you know, throwing energy out willy nilly, hopeful that, you know, something bad will befall somebody else or, or, you know, even if you're doing something for somebody's benefit, because, you know, you really want to see so-and-so succeed, but deep down you are green with jealousy. The universe is going to recognize that and it's going to come for you and say, yeah, you were, you were, you know, playing like you wanted so-and-so to, you know, be prosperous and, you know, become wildly successful, but we understand your heart is not that genuine. And um, yeah, we're now going to punish you for lying. So intent is everything and focus of energy is everything. And being true to yourself and being honest, it's fine if you're honest and you're going, I really hate that person. And I really want to see them fail disastrously so. If that's really what you're feeling inside, then you're being honest. It's probably not the best game to play, but you're probably going to be successful in in your spell work. There are two things that that I think are the most powerful carriers, carrier waves for for successful spell: love and hate. You know, but you have to you have to understand the reasons behind what it is you seek, first of all. Right. So it's, it's, in other words, this type of magic could teach you to be a better person or something much worse. Um, and I'm sure it's tempting to a lot of people to say, well, this stuff works and I love messing with people's lives. But a lot of what I've read, sometimes it takes a little time but it gets back in really bad ways to those people. Um, yeah. I don't, even the greatest of them didn't live the most fantastic life. You know, uh, Crawley himself, his life was a nightmare. It was a mess. Um, so I've always been cautious of this stuff, but at the same time, I know it works. And is there a... I don't want to call it a safe zone, a place of caution or understanding, full understanding to, to still use this stuff and not have it destroy your own life in the process. I guess maybe through a lack of greed, a true heart, you know, like true faith and understanding of what you're doing and why it's an, it's honesty about your steps forward and a respect. Does that make sense? It does. And I, I think you hit a key word, Chris, when you say respect. Because I, I would say this to anybody who is, is new to the craft or coming into it, or even practitioners, you know, we all need a refresher from time to time. But you have to remember that even, even if you have the best intentions behind what it is that you're doing, you're still messing with free will in a lot of ways. Even if somebody comes to you and says, I'm getting, you know, I, I'm, I'm putting in an application for this job. I really want this job. This would be an absolute coup for me. Could you please do some work on, on my behalf? And even though they're giving you their permi permission to do that, it, you're still towing a line, you know, ethically, morally, none of it's safe. Um, but I, I think if, if, your intentions are true. And I think if you, if your heart's in the right place, 
then what comes back at you is, is going to be, you know, more like a ripple and less of a tidal wave. Uh, but there will be repercussions. Right. And, and the, and the implements themselves are catalysts. So in other words, let's say, you know, you go to the, um, the witchcraft or the Wicca shop, they'll be looking back in more kind of archaic tomes for ingredients to spells. And I suppose if you, you respect the, the, um, the history of it, you'll believe somewhere even in your subconscious that you adding, and I'm not just hypothetically eye of newt and lizard tail or whatever, uh, into a cauldron, you're going to believe that that's supposed to work because that's what was written years ago. Is it all catalyst? Uh, and, and can you explain some of the combinations of ingredients to certain things that might really work or that you've used? <laughs> eye of newt. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's fun because you, you have to remember that it sounds very ominous, but what you're, what you're talking about is plants. You're talking about, uh, colloquial or familial familiar names of plants that were grown in the areas where, you know, those witches were doing their spell work. And when you say witch, um, what you're really saying is, is wise person. What you're really saying is a healer or a, a, a seeker of knowledge. You know, these were, you know, historically, let's say they were women who knew that certain plants had certain properties. And they had seen them in action. They had used them to, you know, cure common colds or to ease suffering or to um, bring about a swift death. And they gave them names like Eye of Newt or Wolfbane or, you know, something similar um, because that's what they looked like. That was a way of discerning them from other species around the hillside or the valley or wherever they were. Um, and the tools are largely archetypes. I mean, they are uh, representations of directing of energy and different energies that they represent, right? You have, you have an athame, which is a blade, uh, versus a chalice, you know, which is a cup. You have things that are made of, of um, wood, or you have things that are made of metal, or things that are made of stone. And it's all reminiscent of, you know, the, uh, the general you know, four or five elements, depending on your, on your, you know, philosophical bent of, of the natural world, say. Um, and when you look at it from that perspective, then you can see how these different items can, you know, be imbued with different kinds of energies that if you, when you combine them in a cauldron, which is basically your glorified cooking pot, that's all it was. And you're putting these things together with intent knowing that they have special properties and then your outcome was successful because you were taking this poultice or you were taking this, this salve or this, you know, tincture or whatever you had made and you were applying it to somebody with an ailment and they were being cured because of your secret knowledge again, in air quotes. Um, and that's what, that's what made those women, those witches dangerous because they had knowledge nobody else had. And, you know, when you look back in the historical perspective, you had, you know, the rise of the Catholic church who looked at these, these women and went, uh-uh, no, we can't have this. We can't have, 
you know, goddess-led cultures. We can't have women in places of power. This is forbidden, you know, and we're going to stamp them out. And, and you know, it's kind of dramatic, sure. But, you know, that's largely what happened. So let's be real. Amazing. So. And so at this time, like, where, um, where do you feel you are in your studies? You know, do you feel like there's so much more to learn about this? Do you feel like you're in a good place with it? I feel like every day I learn something new. Uh, I've, I've talked to some folks over the years who are self-proclaimed masters. And I'm going, yeah, I call bullshit on that because there's always room for growth. There's always room for enrichment. There's always something new that you didn't know before, even if it was a nuance of, of, of meaning or application, I'm always learning. Um, I'm very satisfied with where I am now. I think the only, the only drawback is, you know, in, in the mundane world, having a workaday schedule, you know, and having to reserve my witchcraft practices for times when I'm not at work you know, it's very limiting and it's very dissatisfying and it's, it leaves you feeling empty. It leaves me feeling empty um, because I'm not devoting as much time to it as I would like. Um, I feel like I have a better balance and understanding of my practice. I think it's become more circumspect, balancing the light with the dark, the good with the bad, delving more so into the dark night. Um, and enjoying the, 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 the calmness of, of, you know, the black night and understanding that, you know, it's not so evil. It's not so bad. It's, you know, the things in the light aren't necessarily all that good. You can see them clearly sometimes if they really are not as wonderful as they're made out to be. And I think it really just emphasizes that life is very cyclical and there's largely, um, a balance that needs to be maintained, you know, both within the, within yourself, but also in the physical world. And I think that's really what a witch is, is somebody who's in touch with that knowledge that can achieve that balance in both of those planes. So being a witch doesn't necessarily mean you're going to stamp out any particular religion that you're fond of, or just something you, you practice or believe in, you know, um, I mean, some religions are very cultish and they keep you away from other practices, but others, it seems like you could moonlight as a witch. I suppose you could. Uh, it, it demands of you to be very um, dedicated to your studies, though. If you want to be able to call yourself a witch and be sincere, you have to be willing to devote time for reading, for studying, for learning, for application. Um, you can't just sort of do it as a fly-by-night operation. Um, you, you can play around with it, but you're not going to get out of it, you know, the, the full-fledged, you know, grade-A experience of it, um, unless you're willing to put in the time. Sure, because other, in other words, there's an entire history, there's a way of life attached to it, um, there's an everyday existence attached to it and a way of thinking, a philosophy, all of that. Yes. I would say so. Absolutely. I think, I think certain people more so than others are attracted to the craft. Um, they come to it 
in their own time, maybe because uh, as a professional, they are a healer or they're in healthcare or they are in some sort of humanities. Um, they see the world for the magic that it is. I mean, this place is, it's truly magical. And we get so caught up in the mundane that we forget that just the, the pure being, you know, being here on planet earth, you know, that that's magic of itself. And so you'll get, you'll get artists and creators who go, I've been saying this all along, you know, that there is this whole other beautiful aspect of living that I have been trying to communicate through my paintings or my, through my, my writings or through, you know, my choreography, you know, and they will be attracted to it. You'll get folks that are in, you know, law practices that because they are going to battle, you know, for somebody else's sake, they will get involved in witchcraft because it's another coat of armor that they can put on so that they can take down the injustices in the world. Um, and so it, it attracts a lot of folks, a lot of very diverse people, um, whether, you know, male, female, or however you identify, whatever, you know, color skin you happen to have, whatever your intellect level is, whatever your professional level is, your education makes no difference. I think that the important thing is, is you have to recognize that it is a discipline. It's not a religion, but it's a discipline and it's a practice. That's why they say you practice witchcraft. You learn, you study, you go make something happen. You come back, you analyze it. How did it go? You change a few things. You go out, you try it again. And you continually do this until you're very acquainted with you know, the forces, the energies, the materials, the lunations, the planetary positions, all of these things coming together and it becomes second nature that way, you know, but the magic is, is in the, is in the heart of the witch. What does the afterlife look like to a witch? What's the perspective on life after physical death? You know, I, I don't know for certain that you could say anything across the board, you know, because witchcraft not being a religion, being a practice, you don't necessarily have to have, um, you don't need to identify with deity, a god, a goddess, in order to be a witch or practice witchcraft. Me personally, I do. And I personally believe that, you know, when you leave this realm, when you return to your energetic self, that you are housed somewhere until you are re reincarnated back to the physical realm to live again. Maybe to complete lessons you didn't complete in the last life, maybe to evolve into something higher, you know, in, in the way that uh, if you were Hindu or if you were a Buddhist, you might feel that your, your natural progression, your elevation the more you learn, the more you evolve with each progressive life. Um, I believe in the summer land, which is, you know, kind of kindred to what you'd think of as heaven or Valhalla, a place of rest to go back to uh, have a break from the physical demands and just exist as an energetic being where you have 
reunion with those who have gone before. I mean, everybody who's gone before, you know, for as long ago as, as there's been, you know, humans on the planet as sort of a, a collective energy group. Until Do you believe in a heaven, a place where you can convene with, like you just said, all of these souls of the past and speak with them? And I, I believe, I believe it's unknowable, really. I believe that there is something that's probably kindred to heaven. You know, I, I wouldn't think that it has everything to do with, you know, clouds and sunshine and rainbows and unicorns, you know, where everything is happy-go-lucky all the time. I, I, I don't think that there's that kind of a place. I think that it's, it's, you know, maybe a nebula, you know, maybe it's a black hole. Maybe it is, you know, an unknowable, you know, yet undiscovered form of, you know, astronomical body or event or something that we turn into as a, as a holding pen before we, we return. But it's a place of peace, a place of rest, a place of, of respite from the physical life um, where it, it's, it's more or less like going home, you know, to the center of the universe. That's what I believe. Well, we're getting towards the end here, but I just wanted to ask you because I didn't ask you. Um, well, you did tell me about one. Tell me another story of any kind of encounter with the supernatural or paranormal, as some people call it. Um, you know, the only other thing that sticks out in my mind is, you know, for the longest time during sort of early to mid-autumn, we, as a family... Uh, an extended family would converge on, you know, the the natal house, the house where my grandparents were born. You know, and and my grandmother was one of many children. Um, and at some point, either in her childhood or maybe even before she was born, and my my grandmother was born in about 1917, and this house had been, you know, a good hundred years old. You know, by the time I, I came into the picture, but we would convene at this house and we would have, you know, sort of a, a reunion. There would be food and there would be, you know, laughter and talk. And, and, you know, towards, towards nightfall, conversation would always turn towards Aunt Susan. I don't know who she was exactly, but she was a, an age old ghost who was said to inhabit you know, either one of the barns or the attic of the house where we would be located. And I think it started out as a tale of, you know, discipline for the kids, you know, behave or Aunt Susan's going to get you, you know, you guys, you need to go to bed. You need, you know, don't be wandering out after curfew because if you do, Aunt Susan's going to come for you. You know, and as a child, you're going, oh, my God, what's going on? And as an adolescent, you're going, ooh, spooky, whatever. Um, one particular occasion, and I was probably no more than about 11 years old or so, we had gone there in the way that we had every year previously, and I decided we should play hide and seek. 
and my cousins are there and there's probably six of us kids in total or so. And it's raining outside. We can't be outside. You know, there's trees, there's mountains. There's a lot of you know places where you could be hiding outside. Couldn't be outside. We had to be in the house. And so we had two choices. We could either go down in the basement, which is a dirt floor, really messy, not a whole lot going down there. Or we could go upstairs to the upstairs bedrooms in the attic. And we decide that, well, let's, let's just take this game upstairs. So we proceed to, you know, we hide and somebody starts looking for us. And me being the smart one, decide that I'm going to be really ballsy and I'm going to go upstairs in the attic. And it was one of those old fashioned sort of drop down attic doors where you would drop the hatch down and unfold the ladder. And you would climb up the ladder and you would get to the top. And then there was like another interior door. And I did that and I got up in there and I closed the hatch behind me. And I'm turning to push open the, the, the secondary door, the second door that's going to put me into the, the main part of the attic. And the door won't move. I'm going, haha, this is fun. Okay, fine. This is great. And it won't move. But now on the far side of the attic, I can hear something moving on the floor next to me. You know, and I'm 11 years old and I'm going, oh, it's, it's gotta be squirrels or it's gotta be rats or it's gotta be something, but it's getting closer. And at, at one point or another, there was thumping and there was scraping and it was seemingly on top of the door that I was trying so desperately to get open. And it was at that time that I just, I just really started to lose my mind. I start sobbing. I start screaming. I'm shaking the door below me, trying to get the ladder redeployed so that I can get the hell out of there. And I hear banging. I hear twisting. I hear scraping. I am hysterical at this point. And I finally get the ladder to drop. And I, I basically make this great leap of faith down this ladder, landing on the plank floor. And my cousins are standing there and they're all younger than me. And they're looking at me wide eyed in terror going, you know, basically what is going on? And they see the hysteric state that I'm in and they immediately start crying, which then alerts all of the adults in the house. And they all come to intercept us. And of course, my mom's there and she's going, what in the hell is going on? And she took one look at me and, and she just sees me just completely unhinged. And I look at her and I said, there's something in the attic. And she says, I know, honey, it's Aunt Susan. <laughs> wow. Yeah, those family ghost stories and actually experiencing one, you know, like every week there's umpteenth ghost shows on, you know, multiple networks, some of which I've worked with. Uh, and it just seems like every location they go to, they have just a profound experience. I mean, like literally being attacked, scratched, chased, yelled at, everything works. In my lifetime, I've had two experiences and I've been to some weird places too, even making shows. Um, I just, I find it hard to believe when when someone says, you know, it's everywhere I go, I, you know, I have a new ghost experience. It's a, it's a rare thing. It's something to be cherished. It's when you have that 
that encounter, uh, something appears, you hear something. I think it's so rare for a human being to have. Well, I think, I think it's, it's interesting for me, like I said, my education being in science, you know, to have this sort of otherworldly experience that demonstrates that not everything can be measured. You know, just because we can't measure it yet doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Of course. And eventually, someday, perhaps we will be better able, better equipped with better language or a better system or something, you know, to be able to empirically measure these things, you know, objectively measure these things. And then, of course, we'll say, well, told you so. I knew this all the way along. Sure. Just like with everything it. else, like with everything yeah. else that was doubted sure. or told that this is impossible or this thing doesn't exist anymore or it doesn't simply exist and then we find it. Uh, so that's that's the mindset that I have. And this also applies to the final question. I ask every guest the same thing. Um, if you are able to retain your consciousness after physical death, what would you take with you? I think the thing that I would most want to retain would be the memory or at least the memory of the feeling of being loved and of having loved another being, you know, to, to go to that place of energy, that place of, of rest, of respite, but to do so being absolutely confident that there's so much overwhelming goodness in the universe that no, no matter what happens at the end of days, at the end of time, that basically it, it's, it's all going to work out one way or the other. Welcome back to Off to the Witch. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and I want to thank you for spending time with us once again. I'll leave you with a word of caution regarding the various forms of magic and spellcasting. Be true and positive in your intentions, as the energy that moves us and surrounds us is quite real. If it's true that it all comes home to you, I would think twice about sending it off with ill intent. Until our next night together, Try to enjoy the daylight.